0: Welcome to Anime Echoes. So we'll be going through volume 8 of Bakano. I'm really excited for this volume. I feel like it's all going to be about Huey, which is what I've been looking forward to going through all these other volumes. So I'm really excited. Um, but yeah, let's just start off. So we begin the volume with the epilogue. So a character's talking to the members of the Daily Days about how exciting an incident he's talking about is. He says that he can't just deliver the information without emotion, that the emotion is a fundamental part of providing the information. Bit by bit, it gets revealed that it's Sham, one of the twins, and that he will be the one narrating it. At the very least, the events that he was actually at, and then the ones he wasn't at, the information broker will be narrating it. It begins the story with the camerista. So we jump to Firo, and he's locked up with Cuff's, Agent Edward is talking shit to him, and Fira isn't all that phased. Fira notes to Edward that he's changed, and normally he'd, like, blow a fuse over something small. And then Edward says that Fira's changed, getting himself captured just so easily. We get some, like, tidbits into, like, what's going on. So the FBI is about to be formed, which is really, really interesting. Um, Bill Sullivan walks in with um, Donald Brown and someone called Alan Becker as well. And they read into Firo's file. Italian father, American mother, both dead from tuberculosis, born in Hell's Kitchen, New York, and just like his dad, joined the mafia. And then um, Firo corrects him saying, it's the Camorra. So it was cool to actually get some background on Firo. You know, like we learn about a bit about his Italian father. We learn that he has an American mother, you know, and what happened to them. Just getting small things about Firo it adds like um, like a certain flavour to his character, so I thought that was really good. Now, Firo is cuffed and all that, and he's getting talked down by Bill Sullivan. And Firo immediately doesn't like this guy. Then Alan Becker sits down, and it's an odd moment for Firo, because he feels like he remembers him. He opens his hand and closes it, and says that he would have been his if he was hungry. So it turns out this person before him, this Bill Sullivan, is someone from Zillard's past. And that's why Firo thought they felt, like, familiar. And since he can eat people, right, he's probably an immortal. And turns out, or, like, it's revealed very quickly, that it's Victor Talbot, So one of the immortals. Now, it turns out Victor never really got along with the rest of the immortals back on the ship. Um, also, like, some intel told him about Firo being immortal. And he's, ultra- he's also, like, really interested in Ennis. Um, he knows that she can only be alive attached to someone. So he basically understands that Ennis is only alive because she's attached to Firo. Now, Victor goes talking about how much he hates the mafia and everything like that, and how even if some of them are good, he just hates them all. He can't, you know, he can't get away from that black and white thinking, basically. He also has a quirk where he says, like, hate, hate, hate a lot, and then he, like, doesn't stop and then, like, chokes. Um, So Firo threatens him, saying that he'll eat him. But then it's very clear that all of them, so everyone within the room, is very prepared for Fira to go on the attack. So Victor can play mind games, but then he can also back it up. Despite this, despite them being prepared, Fira kind of pushes his luck anyway. Fira flips the table up and, well, Victor catches it and then lands on the table. So Victor's plenty strong as well. He can definitely back it up. So, like, Fira's finally kind of subsiding a bit and saying, like, okay, like, what do you want me to do? And Victor says that he wants him to take a trip to Alcatraz, so to a prison. So this was a really cool intro, um, like an introduction to Victor's character. He seems interesting. He seems kind of powerful. Um, he seems kind of hot-headed. also at the same time. Like, yeah, he's prepared, but you, you get the feeling that like any spark could like set him off. Um, also, he doesn't get along with a lot of the immortals, which makes a lot of sense. Like a lot of these immortals that we've seen, they're not really, you know, by the book, you know, following the rules, but this guy's, like, part of the Bureau, so it's, um, yeah, he's, like, following the rules. It's very anti-alchemist, like, I wonder how he, you know, got to that stage. Um, but yeah, this was a cool action scene, and I enjoyed the dialogue. Now, the next scene is one I really, really enjoyed. It has to do with Lad Russo, so we, we jump into this, like, glorious tale about him. It's, like, the prologue for his character, and it follows, like, a certain guard. So this guard always thought that his position made him above, like, all prisoners. Like, he was an elite at the place he worked at, and to an extent, it's a fair assumption, right? Like, he's the guard, they're the prisoners, and after all, he did reign over people. But something happens that triggers him into a bit of a scare. A bit of a scare would be kind of a mild way to put it, but what triggered him was a man named Lad Russo. So when the guard heard about Lad, he thought he would be some sort of maniac. He heard the tale about how he was part of some train incident that ended up being covered up by large agencies from people in power. He thought Lad would abso- like he would be absolutely insane given his body count, but to his surprise, at least initially, he showed himself to be quite contained, to be doing the work actually, getting along for the most part, not starting anything. All in all, based on the evidence before him, based on Lad's behavior. He couldn't help but consider Lad to be a mortal prisoner. Then this impression began to change, a little by little, after a certain incident. So some of the prisoners picked a fight with each other, specifically Gustavo, over something that was said. The guards rushed to the scene and had their weapons on hand to create some sort of order in the chaos before them. The guard who's telling this story, once again, had a lot of faith in himself. After all, he was with the other fellow guards and... He was all but, and by all purposes, above the lowly inmates before him. He liked to show his superiority, and because of that, he wanted to invoke some fear into the prisoners, scare them a little, to create some order, but also for his own, like, self-gratification. He threatens them by mentioning Alcatraz, a prison that sent shivers down the prisoner's spine, even Gustavus, the current top dog at the prison. Despite this, it didn't send shivers down one person's spine. It didn't shen- it didn't send the shivers down lad's spine in fact it may have awoken something within him lad asks Alcatraz what can someone do to get into Alcatraz the guard told him that a chicken like lad should just stay in his lane only the worst prisoner is going to that place lad smiled a very eerie and like horrific smile the smile terrified the guard and it was on his mind after that incident he felt a nasty hunch, like something awful was going to happen. He thought he would be jumped by lad, but to his surprise, he was just eating dinner all by himself, no one around. Though with closer inspection, there were people around, but they were all just kind of like laying on the floor, bruised, broken, battered. The guard didn't know what was going on, and he wanted to make excuses in his mind that lad couldn't be this scary person he thought he was. But it became apparently clear that Lad was the one who beat up all the prisoners around him. Some guards were also looking on in terror. Gustavo was one of them, and he rushes at Lad, hurling a table at him. It breaks into and Lad like slips by like through the cracks, and then looks at the guards and says, "This counts as self-defense, right?" And then he punches the guy in the gut and then sends him flying like just packing he looks at the guard in the face and says that this guy, he's like full of himself. And he sees that he's someone who's comfortable, not going to die. The people who feel like this feel like they're, they're like the furthest from dying, that he's hilariously oblivious to death and that he thinks that the prisoner's life is in his hands. People like that, it's lad's job to teach them a lesson. And he whispers this into the guard's ears, that specific guard that we're following. The guard who's narrating is sure that lad is gonna kill him. The guard sees that happening and is looking on in like disbelief. Now after this, lad was pull- put into like solitary for like ten days. Generally, one day would be enough to take someone out, but lad was put in for ten. The guard quit his job because he's now like terrified for his life. And towards the end of the scene, he's losing it and he feels like lad is coming after him. He's scared to- of death now right lad did that to him he's now scared of death and that's how the scene ends it's such a really great way like it's such a vivid scene to showcase like the perspective of the guard and how someone can be like influenced by lad like it showcases his conviction at the start all the way to him realizing that his hunch was right and that he should be scared like the um like the entire process of someone realizing that they had a feeling of you know like authority a feeling of like not dying the entire time, and then to realise that they are absolutely terrified of living now. Like, the lad taught the guard that lesson. He kept his promise. It's a great reintroduction to, like, lad. It sets him up as, like, a menace, and someone to definitely, like, look out for. Him one-shotting Gustavo is a testament to his strength, and, like, the carnage and the schemes he's going to cause will obviously be really interesting. We know that lad is always looking for the next exciting possibility of bloodshed, I do wonder if his decision to check out Alcatraz was born from wonder, or was it because he knows Huey is in Alcatraz, I mean probably because of Huey, like he did declare that he was going after him, like that is the guy he wants to take out the most. That being said, we see like Lad's more calculating side, how he can become a more like model prisoner for the sake of getting out, at least that's what I was thinking. I think he was suppressing himself for the moment where he could be released and then continue his journey of carnage. Perhaps hearing Alcatraz made him realize that he can experience bloodshed soon by going after Huey. That's where his thinking brain puts is get, gets put towards the back. Now he's only thinking about creating a mess. So before he was actually being more calculating and thinking, and perhaps trying to get himself out of prison. But after hearing Alcatraz, he's like, no, nah, no, nah, I'm gonna stop being you know rational, and now completely give in to you know the the possibility of um killing Huey basically and he's doing his duty of making guys who think they're going to live feel the light go out of their eyes and then realize that they aren't in control anymore that they don't have any autonomy anymore either way i thought this prologue scene was like really really good it was a really good tale from like the perspective of a guard i felt really immersed in it like it was some sort of like side story and it makes me like makes me like really excited to see how lad acts from now on i'm like really keen to see what happens next with lad and it's just a really good like reintroduction to lad like if you for like if you forgot about him for a little bit or what his quirks were or how he acts and the presence that he brings to like the novels this this really solidifies him as like a key player now the next scene involves a character named renée where first showcased her like falling over and being like super clumsy this seems to be like a theme with her character We cut to the man, we cut to a man, sorry, in a suit who is talking to some like shadowy figure. The shadowy figure doesn't say much, but eventually they mention Huey Lafaray. Right after Renee brings in some coffee and food and hits into the man in the suit and he goes everywhere. The man in the suit reprimands her, but despite this dynamic, or her seeming like a subordinate, and him being the boss, her providing meals and coffee like a secretary, she's actually the director of the place. So despite her clumsy nature, she's actually the boss of this corporation. She says to the shadowy figure in a very carefree tone that she would like him to go after Huey Laferré and to gouge out one of his eyes, and the scene ends. From first impressions, she, seem- she seems like a crazy scientist type of person who also has like a fairly upbeat personality, but she's also like super clumsy as well. Like generally scientists require like a certain amount of precision for their jobs but most likely for her she's kind of like playing with her experiments. If she wasn't having fun or messing around I don't know if she would have made all the employees of um, Nebula into like guinea pigs and then half of them into like immortals. That being said I wonder what she wants one of um, Huey's eyes for like most likely to experiment on. I mean he is an immortal um, but doesn't she know that immortals just kind of grow back their eyes? Like, how would you be able to take someone's eyes? How does that work? Um. So, that being said, also, like, how would she, like, preserve the eye itself? Like, how is she actually planning to take an immortal's eye and then have it still be alive? You know, like, it's always going to be trying to... Or maybe, like, if you encase the eye into something, right? Well, it's going to be trying to go back to Huey, but... If it's encased, then it can't, you know, it can't move anywhere. Now, she might be, like, a really interesting foil for Huey, with him being the emotionally detached crazy scientist and her being, like, the emotionally charged scientist. There is, isn't Im- like, an image provided in the novel of what Renee looks like. It's, um, and it's of her, like, dropping the coffee. So that was really helpful because it allowed me to, like, construct what she looked like a lot easier. Either way, um, I'm, like, keen to see what happens next. Anyhow, we find out the shadowy figure is Felix Walken. So, I doubt the guy in the suit is Senator Barium, though. Like, Senator Barium had a lot more presence, so he's probably just, like, a subordinate to Rene. Um, we get Felix's impression of Renee, which gives us more insight into her character. So, from Felix's perspective, Renee, by all accounts, was a fairly innocent person. At least, subjectively. Like, Renee never held any malice when she commits her crimes or anything like that. She basically just says what she thinks and acts accordingly. She's innocent in that sense. From a more objective standpoint, she's far more villainous. We hear about her buying human subjects to perform experiments on, and most likely that would be just the tip of the iceberg. For Felix, she's an interesting case of innocence, but he could also see the lunacy that she had like underneath all of that. Like She does very much seem like a crazy person on the outside, but I guess her felt experience of herself, is just one, is just a person who, like, kind of does what they want, moves towards what's interesting for them, um, in a very innocent manner, like, not holding any malice or bad intent or anything like that. Now, Felix feels like the lunacy he witnesses, I guess from Renee and just people in general, is something that was common sense, at least in his world, in the world of, you know, the mafia and the hitmen and stuff like that, now that last line, I'm curious what he means by that overall, like specifically. Like do you have to be, or do you have to have some level of the screw in your head being loose to survive in a world of hitmen and mafia? I mean that would make sense. In order to experiment on people, you would also have to be a bit crazy. But I think perhaps those who hold on to deep malice might be quick to die in this world that they're describing. Like those like Rene who merely just act at the behest of their desires have a certain strength that's required to survive in this world. Like, if you're that emotionally charged and that, um, like you're holding onto that much malice and anger and it's really specific and personal, you might make silly decisions or not have enough crazy within you to really go the, the extra mile and you might end up dying really quickly. So we jump over to the Alvair and we see Isaac and Miria talking about some of the crimes that they have committed. They were putting on a show for the rest of the folks at the place. They were quite well known now. In fact, everyone knew them. Um, the place had actually turned into more of a restaurant like once Prohibition had ended and turns out it worked quite well for the business. So the Martello family is doing pretty well. Everyone who has like gathered around them needed to be a little tipsy in order to indulge themselves into Isaac and Miriam's stories because it's always like crazy hard to understand like the plot of what they're actually saying which is, you know, similar to talking to someone who's kind of tipsy. talking to someone who is tipsy when you're not can be kind of hard to keep track of so I guess it's best to be tipsy as well in order to have these conversations right it would just make it a lot easier to follow because you're not really following you're just tipsy. So something to note is a middle-aged gentleman with a mustache arrives to their duo so he proceeds to ask them questions about what they were wearing at each crime spot. Now, Isaac and Mira clearly outline, like, what they were dressed in, as mummies for one, there were Indian apparels for one, at the Genovad residence, and so on and so forth. So he's just giving them everything. Now, the gentleman proceeds to, like, wear a smile throughout this entire conversation. So we, the reader, know that the smile is more of, like, a, you know, like a smirk, like an evil smirk. When I saw that line, that the smile was more of a smirk, and since the cover of the book has Isaac in prison clothes, I knew that eventually Isaac had to end up in prison somehow. So most likely if someone is asking questions about their crimes and Isaac needs to end up in prison, this person, you know, with the moustache is probably a policeman and turns out that's exactly who he was. As the duo was about to like exit Alvair and they go with the man, the the man with the moustache, like they're all outside, though Isaac does tell Miria to go get his wallet because he left it. Now Miria does exactly that and then Isaac tells the man that you know, they should go, like him and the mustache man should go. Now, Isaac reveals very quickly to the cop that he knows that he's a cop. This surprised the cop because he didn't think he knew. But this also surprised me too. I didn't see Isaac as being someone who actually had a brain. It seems like he might actually be smart, like the smarter one out of the duo. I mean, this does make a lot of sense. Like Muriel generally doing like the supporting role while Isaac is saying some random crap and then making the plans and stuff like that. At least, you know, so, like, it does kind of show that Isaac did have, like, more of, like, the intellectual side, but no one would really consider, like, Isaac, like, a well-planned person or kind of cunning in any way. That being said, talking about one's crimes out in the open isn't particularly bright, but regardless, we get to witness Isaac actually being someone that was kind of witty. I was honestly really impressed by Isaac at this moment. Like, it also made me think about the line in this scene from before how they talk about how no one really knows the past of this duo. Like, in the last volume, it's hinted that they grew up, or Isaac grew in a place, like, similar to Millionaire's Row, which is quite a lavish place, all things considered. So Isaac might actually be, like, a rich boy that perhaps got bored of all the sparkle. Maybe Miriam himself um, helped him get himself out of that scenario. I don't... I'm not, I'm not, I'm not actually sure. But with Isaac being taken away... Miriam come, comes back and to find Isaac gone, and it's a silent moment. Like you feel pretty bad for Miriam in this moment. It feels like her other half has just like disappeared. It has always been difficult to kind of like separate Isaac and Miriam from each other. So seeing Miriam just by herself felt pretty wrong and kind of sad. As a prediction though, I think this might be setting up a renew like a reunion down the line. Like I wouldn't be surprised if there's a scene where Isaac and Miriam see each other again, you know, post prison and it's like super heartfelt. So yeah, I can't wait to see that and also like get into the action because I feel like things are like really ramping up and the prologue just ended. Um but yeah, that was a that was a good way to like kinda end the prologue, you know, like this somber, slightly somber scene with you know, between Isaac and Miriah, like characters that are generally like really, really happy like using that kind of um contrast makes you know like as you're reading it you're just like oh I haven't seen this before like I haven't seen these two be that sad or to be separated like this feels like a big deal and this is just like the prologue so yeah I'm really looking forward to what happens next. So jumping out of the prologue and straight into the thick of the plot so we arrive at Alcatraz with Firo and he's looking on at the place, and we get some history in regards to Alcatraz, and how it transformed and earned, it's earned itself the name of being unescapable. How movies have made it into an icon, though none of that is on Fira's mind. He's just thinking back to how he got his, how he got into this position in the first place. Um. So through that, we get into a flashback, which is actually just following the prologue scene involving Fira. So Fira's sitting down after hearing Victor mention that he'll be going to Alcatraz. Now, Firo, you know, pretty standard response. Why the hell would I ever go there? So Victor initially says that, you know, for bragging rights and then teases Firo and that he would be a favorite in no time because how girly his face is. Um, Firo thinks back to how he's different now. How, um, you know, that would previously kind of set him off, but now he's a bit more somber, not somber, sorry, but like a bit more calm. And how he used to only like trust the Gandalf family and Claire But now he had other people he considered family, like Ennis and Isaac and Miria. So anyway, back to the action. Victor brings up Ennis again, and Victor explains that Ennis ate an alchemist in order to actually gain emotions, guilt, and endless regret. Fira does remember it due to Zillard's memories, and he does wonder if Ennis is also still feeling that guilt for that incident. She did commit a bunch of crimes on Zillard's orders. She might be beating herself up for them. Now, Victor reveals that the alchemist that Ennis ate was in fact a good friend of his. But Victor doesn't want revenge or anything like that. He thinks that if eating people would have solved all his problems, then he would have done that already to Firo and to Huey. He doesn't want to imitate a psycho like Zillard. That being said, he's not over his friend being eaten. So he does threaten Firo, saying he can pin other crimes of Zillard onto her. So he's offering Firo like a plea bargain. If he does this thing for them, then Ennis's crimes can res- can remain unresolved. Fear is asking, how do I know? Like, how do I know that you're gonna actually keep your word? So Victor leans in and gives the same intimidation that he felt from people like Miza, Yagurama, Moza Martillo, their boss, and Ronnie. So that's a pretty big intimidation factor that Fear is feeling, and he comes close and he says, "I'll hush up Ennis's business for you." I swear it on all the justice in this country. I thought this was a good scene. It set up the premise pretty well, and Ennis is always a great motivation for Fira. I do want to touch back to like a scene from volume 7. When Claire arrives, Ennis is surprised that Fira is acting so chummy with Claire, and he's so okay with being teased. It seems that Fira is only okay with certain people teasing him, only people he considers his family. That being said, we get the impression that Fira is very selective about who he considers his family. Like, he never trusted anyone outside of the Gandors and Claire prior to Isaac and Mira and Ennis coming into his life. So Fira has always been, like, a pretty reserved person as far as letting his heart open to other people. I think this is something we could have inferred before, but I like that the author is stating it so explicitly. I'm also, like, really interested in Victor's, like, philosophy on life. What does justice mean to him specifically? What kind of person is he actually? Um, because Victor's like an, you know, like as mentioned before, Victor was like an alchemist and stuff like that. But now he's part of like the Bureau of Investigation. So, you know, what's going on there? How did he transition from that to like where he is now? So in the next scene, we're still with Vera. He's had a couple of days to think over the offer from Victor. He thought it would work out in some way or the people within the family would fix the problem, but nothing actually happened. Fira says that Ronnie, who was abnormally confident, might do something about it, but it wasn't in Fira's nature to hope like that. In the end, he decided to solve the problem himself. This thought process is really interesting. So in the previous scene, we get nods to how Fira is very secretive about who he lets into his heart, and how distrusting he is of, you know, people. While Fira does trust the Martillo family, his general distrust for people might be the reason why he doesn't ask Ronnie for help. Like he feels like he's being like too much by asking for help. He doesn't let himself get attached too easy. I do wonder if he's actually um, asked the Martillo family for help or if in the three days he's basically like never mentioned it at all. Just with these small lines, I feel like Firo might put too much pressure on himself to fix his problems. Um, it could be a small arc, arc for Firo where he has to learn to accept more help from people. Now, I'm going off like barely any evidence, like whatsoever, so I'm keen to see where this goes. Victor had promised Firo that his identity would be safe and Huey's people would have no intel on him. His job is to like monitor Huey after all. He was supposed to meet someone from the bureau in the prison, and a guard like speaks to him, and Firo is thinking, This must be that person. The person I'm supposed to meet should all be good, and yeah, and then I guess the next step of the mission will continue, but turns out. He's related to Huey, and he says that Huey is excited to have another fellow immortal nearby. Now, this makes Phyra's initial optimism about the situation immediately plummet. And once again, he reiterates, this is the pits. That it's not going to be an easy journey. So, this was a really good scene. Um, already the schemes are starting to reveal themselves. Like, Huey has people who are already interacting with Vera. Like, the machinations are already starting. So I'm keen to see what happens next and yeah it's just good like the ball is rolling the plot's moving like really really fast Um, and we've had like all these interesting scenes so yeah. So we cut over to Ennis and she's been depressed for a while. She was thinking about how Fira was a precious member of her family something she never really had before. Despite this she didn't realize just how much she cared about him until he had gone to prison. The absence of Vera left a gaping kind of hole that needed to be filled. But Ennis knows that she can't just stay depressed forever. She needs to move forward and come up with an action plan or something to do. Another thing that was bothering her was Isaac being taken in. It happened about a month ago and everyone thought Miria was just being hysterical. But despite this, Miria didn't show any expression and then up and disappeared as well. And they hadn't seen her since. So there's a lot of like tension kind of going on. Things have happened that people don't really understand. You know, people are missing and it's just not a good situation to be in for Ennis. So yeah, the entire family is pretty tense right now. Now Shez goes to Ennis to cheer her up. He tells her that Fira will be fine. He is an immortal after all. Ennis says, yeah, that's true. After all, Shez has managed to survive for 200 years and he managed to reunite with Miser too. Now, when Shez hears this, he gives like a hesitant yeah. Um, not sure what this is about, but it might have to do with what's explored with Shez's character in like the fifth novel. How despite reuniting with Miser, he continues to act like a kid, not showing his real self. He might still be doing that with Miser, and thus the idea of reuniting with Miser might make him feel kind of uncomfortable, knowing that he hasn't fully showcased himself fully and his actual personality. Now, after this, someone shows up and walks in and says he's here to talk to an old friend named Miser. Shez sees his face and immediately stiffens. We know from a reaction like this that it's probably another immortal. I had a feeling it was Victor, and at the end of the scene, it's confirmed that it is Victor. Luckily, Victor doesn't recognise Annis, the person who killed his friend under Zillard's orders, so there wasn't really any conflict there, at least at the beginning. Though, what this does set up is Ennis and Victor talking to each other. We're informed that Ennis does feel immense guilt for what she's done, so this would be a great way to, rec- a great way to reconcile those feelings and to also challenge them too. I'm curious to see if they ever make up, where despite Firo trying to clear Ennis's name by going to prison, Ennis kind of clears it herself by um, showing how she's changed and maybe helps out Victor a little. We'll have to see. Um, in the scene, um, Victor is talking to Chez, saying it's been a while and that he looks good. So, like, Shez is, like, super stiff in this situation and is also questioning Victor, mostly if he knew Shez was with the Martillo family. Uh, Victor reveals that he has eyes that are looking at Shez, you know, from all places, and he knew what he was doing. Now, this obviously freaks Shez out quite a bit. He is pretty cautious and the idea that other people are monitoring him would freak him out. And he wants to question further, but Victor stops him. Instead, he asks Shez a pressing question. Where's Ferment, The guy you were with. The person you left the ship with. Shez has a very, very startled response, which is amazingly showed to us through like a drawing as well. Just hearing that name terrifies him. Ennis couldn't defend Shez at all because she felt really guilty about what she's done, like eating the alchemist. And because of this, no one's really interfering, but someone does interfere and the tension is broken by this, and that someone else is Miser, the person Victor came to see. So, as they discuss, it's revealed that Victor is part of the Bureau of Investigation. We already knew that, but once the Martillo family heard this, we hear clatter and, like, other sounds, basically showcasing that they're on their guard. They're like, we know this guy's, you know, from the police. We need to be wary of this guy. This guy's an enemy. Now, Victor's arrived to talk about Huey and... He knows that Huey is finding a way to contact people despite being in prison. And Victor wants to find out how. How is this guy actually talking to other people, even though he's locked up in one of the hardest prisons to get out of? Victor wants to know. He wouldn't be surprised if another, you know, flying pussyfoot incident happens again. So a large incident that needs to be covered up. It wasn't covered up by the Bureau though, so we find that out. It was just covered up by some other organisations who Victor has trouble kind of... Uh, kind of forming, um, making decisions with and stuff like that. Anyway, apparently, these other organizations are very hostile. And to help with the investigation of Huey, um, Victor mentions what he's done to Firo, and that because of this, there's more clatter and shrieks. The Martillo family are pissed because they know something's happened to Firo, and they know he's involved, and that he's the one who did it. And Miser isn't just going along with it either because they're old friends. His eyes are more narrowed down than usual. And he states that depending on what Victor says, he might become their enemy. So Mize is really defending Firo. Like, you know, all this time Mize has been with the Martillo family. Just because he's had like a relationship or a connection with someone black on the ship, you know, in the 1700s or whatever. Doesn't mean that he's gonna, you know, be like, oh, Victor, what you did was okay. Like, he's pretty pissed off, which is really good to see, I think. Like, it really kind of helps... Um, you know, showcase the bond between, like, Miser and Firo. That being said, um, Victor does explain that Firo did it to free Ennis of her crimes. Um, Victor tells Miser that he shouldn't join Huey. Whatever Huey is planning, stay out of it. This entire time, he's kind of verbally, kind of berating Miser as well, because he's affiliated with a gang. It's clear that Victor hates gangs and doesn't like that an old friend of his is is a part of one. Anyway, he's leaving and he's about to go out and he bumps into Yagurama. Now, because of this, like, Victor starts feeling dizzy and he, like, falls to the floor. And then he felt like a violent shudder run the air out of his lungs. He falls down. Yagurama offers to help him up, but Victor feels like Yagurama used his, like, Eastern martial arts on him. So he, like, slaps away his hand. Or at least he tries to, but Yagurama catches it with his vice grip. Then he realises he's sitting at a chair in the counter. Then like sharp demonic eyes glare at him and terrifies him a little. And then Ronnie says to Victor that someone could put their right hand on your head too. Just like in 1711 on the Edvina Advis. And when Zilla did it. So we find that's like some stuff about Victor's past. And Victor can't figure out who this person is. And Victor's annoyed that he got played but he walks out. So this was a pretty cool like line from um, Ronnie. Like, he's mentioning, like, this moment that was probably pretty terrifying for Victor. Zillard having his right hand on Victor's head. So, I really want to see that scene. Now, after Victor kind of goes out, we find out that this was just Yagurama and Ronnie kind of teasing him a little, kind of um, poking him and, you know, making him pay for, like, kind of yelling and doing things to Firo and stuff like that, you know. Maiza tells Yagurama and Ronnie that they played with him maybe a bit too much Um, It was a very disorientating scene. Like, I remember when I read the scene, I was like, what is going on? This feels like, what is happening? Um, Are people just attacking him? Why is he teleporting to places? This feels like, you know, very disorientating. But yeah, one thing that's really funny, though, is that Ronnie hilariously is sad that Victor didn't recognize him. And he promises that the next time he gets summoned, that he'll put more effort into making an impression. So, poor Ronnie. Um, so first in the last novel, Fira isn't thinking about you and he's thinking about Ennis. Um, and now Victor doesn't recognize him, so he's not really leaving an impression for a demon. Um, he's realizing that not enough attention is going towards him. Um, but yeah, overall, I thought this was a pretty good scene. I like the pressure that Victor exerts on like Shez and how he asks questions that will, you know, really reach the core of Shez, which is like, where is Fermit? Chez's shock is very reminiscent to how Chez would act post, like, Flying Pussyfoot or on there, Like, he hasn't gone through the character development in Light Novel 5 yet. So, because of that, he's not really, um... He doesn't really have that much, kind of, faith in the past that he's gone through. He doesn't really, you know, feel like he has, like, a real, kind of, intimate connection with Miser and stuff like that. And also, the past is really, really haunting him. I mean, in Light Novel 5, the past is still haunting him, but... He does seem to get like a second win when he, you know, like throws his jacket into the flames and comes out of the flames and stuff like that and realizes just how lucky he is to have Miser and people like that in his life. Um, he obviously hasn't gone through that kind of phase. So, right now, we're still getting like the shares that, you know, is willing to kind of trust people slightly, but is very hesitant and knows he's masking himself. So, obviously, when um, Victor is asking questions that really press into that, Um, and press enter his dark past, he gets very, very, kind of, frazzled by it. Now, most of this scene is an interesting conversation between Miser and Victor, just about what's happening and how both of them are in the dark. The best part would be the, like, the growing unrest from the rest of the Martillo family, as they begin to, like, realise that um, Victor's a member of, like, the Bureau, and that he did something to Firo. Um, Another part I thought that was great is his dynamic with Ennis. I'm really looking forward to seeing if this relationship develops further and if Ennis learns to forgive herself for her sins. While her feeling guilt is very human, if she never really had much of a conscience prior to consuming Victor's friend, then you can argue that she wasn't acting out of her own consciousness, um, uh, let her own, like, her own orders, so I do wonder if this, like, friend will be explored thoroughly using, like, Ennis's memories to a flashback in that time, if we'll maybe see that in, like, a later volume. Um, Though I feel like the author would probably want to save that for other volumes where the timeline is in the past. Maybe instead we might go through Ennis's emotions as well regarding the event without revealing like too much about what actually happened to the friend and who he was and stuff like that. Either way there's many different avenues to kind of explore this you know this friend of Victor's. Um, Either way um, lots of intrigue and I'm keen to see if Miser also gets involved in Huey's plot like, having a scene where a character comes to another character, asking them to not get involved is generally... Like, it generally results in that character getting involved in some way. So I'm keen to see, like, the Martillo family's role in the coming vo- volume or the next volumes and stuff like that. So overall, um, this is kind of like the end for the first section of Volume 8. Um, yeah, having a blast. It's really, really good um keen to see what happens next and yeah look forward to the next episode which will be the second vol i mean the second episode for this current volume which is volume 8 but yeah look forward to that and thanks for listening